0: Hello and welcome to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. This is a show that explores the landscape of the nonprofit organization, big and small, offers some incredibly helpful information and resources, and gives nonprofits a place to share ideas and get advice. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Our show is sponsored by SUCUP Strategic Solutions, offering a wide variety of services to help nonprofits maximize their impact. So let's get into solving the problems that might be plaguing your nonprofit. Good to have you with us today on Impactability. You've heard the sayings before, teamwork makes the dream work. There's no I in team, let's work together. All of these go team sayings, what are the meanings behind those statements? After all, teamwork does make the dream work, no question, but that's only if the entire team is on the same page. Now once everyone is working together for the common good, How do you keep everyone motivated? What are some ways that managers could improve their emotional intelligence? These are some heavy questions, I get it, but to help us get our teams organized and working together, which we all want, our guest today, Lisa Grunlow. Lisa is a certified professional coach and emotional intelligence coach who has held leadership positions in a variety of corporate, government, advocacy, and consulting organizations throughout the country. Lisa has worked on Capitol Hill as director of communications and a spokesperson to a U.S. senator, a U.S. representative, and federal agency board member. She also held management roles at some of the nation's top PR firms. Today, she is founder and president of Purpose Journey Consulting Training and Coaching. Lisa, we are so honored to have you join us today on ImpactAbility.
1: Thank you, Joe. And it's so great to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: So before we get too far into our discussion, let's start with the basics. Start at the top. What is the definition of emotional intelligence?
1: Oh, my short definition is life mastery. (laughs) It's certainly been that for me in my life. I've been um, working on my own emotional intelligence now for close to 20 years and training and coaching around it for over 15 and so if you want a you know a, a good definition it's really a set of competencies emotional and social competencies that are very research based at this point we've got decades of research on the efficacy of these competencies they help with enhancing our well-being the quality of our relationships and really impact our effectiveness in every area of life So I know that I'm probably overselling it (laughs) by starting that way, but really there's just a long list of benefits that have been identified through research studies and certainly I have experienced in my own life.
0: So why is emotional intelligence important to a nonprofit?
1: You know, when you think about what we do in any sector, for-profit, nonprofit, public sector, everything's about relationships. I mean, we're so dependent upon technology and it's really helped us in a lot of ways become more efficient and effective at what we do but when it comes to customer engagement and you know closing deals and all that that is all about relationships so that is a skill set that we really have to cultivate in order to you know be more effective so when you think about philanthropy you know think about all the different stakeholder groups we have. There are many. There are the people we serve, right? Who does our mission serve? There are donors and our foundations. They're our own employees. They're the media. There are other influencers in the community. They're volunteers. Mentors, volunteers. It goes on and on when you really sit down and you map out you know, all of your stakeholders and you think about not only how important all of those relationships are but how interdependent they all are and all of those relationships are reliant on a high level of trust and communication and collaboration so that's where the emotional intelligence skills are just so essential
0: a lot of organizations that listen to our program have lots of staffers so what are some ways we can get the teams to work collaboratively
1: Well, again, I think when we think about that idea of interdependence, that also extends to teams, internal teams, right? And we talk a lot about, you know, the bigger the organization, the bigger the silos are, you know, people working in their individual departments, and that just doesn't work. That's not an effective way to work. It's not a healthy way for an organization to function. So, you know, making sure that there's a lot of cross-functional Systems set up in the organization and very good and regular communication going on and finding ways for people to work together. You know, you think about finance versus HR versus, you know, the frontline fundraisers, all of those people need information from each other. They need support from each other. And if they're not working together, again, in a trust-based relationship that's authentic and effective, where they can manage conflict effectively and, you know, all of those things, they're just not going to have the optimal results.
0: You know, Lisa, earlier we were talking about conflict. So I'm wondering if there's such a thing as productive conflict.
1: Oh, yes, there is. (laughs) You know, conflict, it's so funny. I think of that word like kind of like how people think of public speaking, like they fear it worse than death itself. (laughs) And, you know, so the first thing I try to do when talking about conflict is neutralize people's immediate reaction to that word and what it is because uh, we all know instinctively that conflict is just a natural part of life where there's no getting around it. You can try to get around it. And there are a lot of conflict avoiders <laughs> out there. I used to be one. Um, but we, we know that when we avoid conflict, it only festers in really dysfunctional undercurrents in our relationships and in our organizations only to blow up Right at some later time and and it gets even worse. So that's kind of the first thing related to conflict is to just accept the fact that that is a natural part of our lives and our relationships and our organizations. And the good news is that it's not all bad. Come to find out. (laughs) There is, of course, there's dysfunctional, unproductive conflict and that's the kind that we don't like. That is personality-driven conflict, right? That's where we're focused on personalities and complaints, and it's not productive. And when that kind of conflict festers, um, where it's either not being addressed or it's being addressed in a way that is condescending or aggressive, it really impacts morale and the ability to you know, have success as an individual team or an organization versus healthy conflict, productive conflict, which is idea driven, right? So this is when we're focused. The conflict is focused on ideas, not people. So when we're able to do that, it's a much more objective process in certain ways. But it's also like, you know, we've all been in meetings before where you know they're just where a lot of ideas flying around and people take someone else's idea and build on it and it's just this really exciting lively dialogue that creates innovation and solutions and those are exciting moments on teams and hopefully we've experienced more of those than the other kind but they both exist they both exist. So um, I I think that's kind of the the first part is just recognizing that, okay, yeah, conflict exists. How do we set up the right processes and culture and and training and support so that we are really optimizing healthy conflict and reducing or eliminating to the extent possible, let's be realistic, Mm -hmm. the unhealthy conflict?
0: So our discussion today is about emotional intelligence. So Lisa, can you talk about the crucial role that emotional intelligence plays when a nonprofit is conducting a fundraiser?
1: So I'm going to take that question as just kind of a bit broader about fundraising, because, you know, there's events and fundraising, but, you know, a lot of fundraising, of course, is done in one-on-one conversations or in other types of venues. So Again, when we go back to the idea that emotional intelligence really is about building authentic, trust based relationships, you know, the first thing is how am I presenting myself? Whether I'm at an event or I'm having a conversation one on one with a donor, authenticity is key. That is so important to connecting with people on a very real, sincere level. So, I believe any time you walk into an event or you pick up the phone or go into a room to have a conversation with a donor or a foundation, it's really important to check your intention and to check your emotions. So think about it this way. We've all kind of had a feeling sometimes of being kind of desperate, right, to close a deal or something. People can sense that. So it's always helpful to think about, What kind of emotions do I want to pump myself up with before I start this process? Do I want to have the mentality of, oh, man, I need to close this deal. I need to get this gift. And those emotions are fear and anxiety and and impatience, right? Not authentic, trust-building kinds of emotions Um, versus coming in with the mindset, how can I help this person give in a way that is meaningful and fulfilling to them? And you immediately shift that focus on them, and it puts you in a place of openness and empathy and curiosity. Those emotions are more love-based. They're joyful. Those are compassionate, empathetic types of emotions that, that just feel better, right? So we're going to perform better when we go in with a certain kind of mindset and positive emotions and quite frankly, not being attached to the outcome. Another thing that I think is helpful is really focusing on curiosity. So I've done a lot of training with directors and managers and supervisors on how to coach and mentor their employees. And it's interesting, because there's kind of a lot of the same thing here. It's like, ask, don't tell. So don't tell somebody why should they, they should give or what they should give to. Get curious, get open, explore what the donors are passionate about, you know, why they want to give. And that becomes an emotional conversation where they are emotionally engaged in the giving process.
0: Our guest today is Lisa Grunlow, emotional intelligence coach. We're talking about ways you can get your team more in sync, especially if you have specific fundraising goals you are trying to reach we're going to take a short break but when we come back we're going to find out the one thing that managers can do to improve their emotional intelligence and how in turn it will vastly improve the outlook of your nonprofit you're listening to Impactability, the nonprofit leaders podcast I'm Joe Turner we will be right back major gifts are the ultimate source of funding for nonprofits They can help fulfill your mission and achieve your vision. Having a strong major gifts program should be a priority, but where do you begin? The best place to start is with Sukup Strategic Solutions. We create transformational change by working collaboratively to raise funds. Our fundraising consultants will assess your organization's fundraising capacity and develop a plan that serves as a blueprint for your fundraising success. Visit our website today at SukupStrategicSolutions.com and schedule a free consultation today. That's S-O-U-K-U-P, SukupStrategicSolutions.com. When it comes to major gifts, the effort you put in can make all the difference, and Cup Strategic Solutions can help. Welcome back to Impactability, the nonprofit leader's podcast. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Don't forget, another edition of Coach's Corner is coming up in a few minutes. Today's guest, we're speaking with Lisa Grunlow about emotional intelligence and how your team can get more motivated, be on the same page, and realize some of the goals that you're setting for your organization. Lisa, can you give us an example from one of your clients Where changes in emotional intelligence made a huge difference in the success of that organization.
1: Yeah, oh, I have so many of those. And as I was thinking about this, I was, you know, recalling a number of times I have worked with leaders who were struggling with a team member who was, you know, underperforming or had some behavioral challenges and things like that. And I think that is one of the most important things that leaders and managers can get good at is having those difficult conversations, can we go back to conflict, right? Having those difficult conversations with team members to really understand what's going on with that person, where they need support, how they can best support their team members. There is a lot of responsibility in being not just a leader, but a manager. So the people that are really kind of working day to day and mentoring and supervising team members. So first and foremost, you've got to learn how to get out of your comfort zone, have difficult conversations, and even be able to take responsibility for where I as a manager might have not done as much as I could have to support my team member. So these kinds of conversations, like early on, not after you know the problems have gone on and on and on for a long period of time, and then it becomes even more awkward and more difficult. And quite frankly, the team member, the employee, has a lot of reason to be angry and upset. Like, well, why didn't you tell me? Most people want to know how they're doing and they want to be supported, they want to be successful. But it's often hard to ask for help. So it really comes to um, you know, the manager, I think, to really step in, be the one who can model those emotional intelligence and healthy uh, conflict competencies. It takes a lot of courage to do that. And another thing that I've helped some clients with is after they've done that and person just isn't working out, Sometimes you have to let people go, and for people, especially leaders I've worked with in nonprofits, that is one of the hardest things. Because nonprofit leaders are heart-centered. That's why they do what they do, right? Yeah. And it's hard to it... make those kinds of decisions and then act on them. You know, when we talk about what emotional intelligence is, you know, it's also important to look at what it isn't. And it's not about being nice. It's about being kind. But it's not about being nice at all costs, because when we allow an employee to stay in a position where they're not having success and despite everyone's best efforts, like truly genuine best efforts, it's just not the right fit for that person. The most humane thing that you can do is to help that person move on to something that is a better fit for Mm -hmm. them.
0: Our discussion is emotional intelligence, Lisa. And one thing that I cannot do is control my emotions. What are some ways that I can get better at it?
1: The first thing that I would say about managing emotions is, Joe, you are not alone. (laughs) And that's one of the most important things, I think, for people to recognize when they're having highly charged, unproductive emotions and, and reactions to things is that our brains are actually wired to have the emotional reactions under stress. And there was a biological need. There still is a biological need for that to happen. I mean, if you're trying to cross the street, right, and you're kind of not paying attention, and you notice a bus hurtling down the street, you want to have a fear response to get the hell out of the sidewalk, right? Back on the sidewalk, out of the crosswalk. So those types of fight, flight, or freeze responses, reactions that that we have that are really part of our biology are still an important part of our makeup. However, we also have immediate reactions to things that don't necessarily require a highly charged emotional fear reaction. So when you think about the brain is constantly and instantaneously searching for context, for anything that putting everything that's happening, everything that we're hearing, seeing in context, and it happens instantaneously. And it's our brain looks for past experiences that are most like what we're experiencing now. Everything that I'm just saying, Joe, is all about that self-awareness pillar that I was sharing early on. It's all about becoming aware of what's going on in me. You know, what am I thinking, feeling, believing? What, what's my behavior like? And how is it impacting everything else in my life?
0: We teased this question earlier, so now I'm gonna ask it. What is the one thing that managers can do to improve their emotional intelligence?
1: Well, definitely starting with self-awareness and doing that work, getting really clear on our personal values, our motivations, and starting there always. And then it extends to the self-management part that we talked about. And that is all about discipline and managing impulses because we have impulses in how we react to things based on our emotions. So really practicing through self-awareness, like how I'm interacting with other people and showing up in a way that is authentic and compassionate? and, you know, if I am angry, how am I channeling that anger or frustration in a way that is honest, but and direct, but still kind? So there's a lot of nuance there, and it's not necessarily um, uh, easy. But one thing that will kill a culture in an organization is when the leaders are not modeling these things. So you're absolutely right when you say um, that the leaders really need to be modeling this first. And I'm not sure that it always trickles down, though, Joe. I mean, it really takes a, a very deliberate effort To make sure people understand what those behavioral expectations are and really giving them the tools and the support and the motivation to do that because i'm telling you when people improve their emotional intelligence they just feel better feel more peaceful they feel happier they feel more confident um, make better decisions have better relationships you know the ripple effects are really tremendous
0: this has been an amazing conversation lisa you have given us lots to think about especially for some who you know might not have considered that a few changes like the ones we've been talking about today could make a big difference in their organization. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Happy New Year to you.
1: Oh, Happy New Year, Joe, and to all of your clients and to the nonprofit community.
0: It's time now for Coach's Corner. This is where we take your questions that you submit us. We ask our impact coach the question and get the answer for you. And the catch is the fact that they only have five minutes in which to answer your question. And now that might sound like a lot of time, but if you've been paying attention to Coach's Corner, it's not always that easy. We get right up to the five minute mark pretty much every single week. And this question, this is one of the most strangest questions we've had yet. I'm going to ask our I'm going to ask our coach Cheryl Sukup, President of Sukup Strategic Solutions. Buckle up for this one. This is going to be tough. Your question is, what is founder's syndrome and how do we know we have it? it has absolutely nothing to do with COVID, I can assure you.
2: <laughs> Thank goodness.
0: Cheryl, you have 5 minutes to answer the question and your question, your time rather begins right now.
2: All right, Joe, thanks so much. So, founder syndrome, you know, When a nonprofit is founded by one or two individuals, many times they spend years putting their heart and soul into the organization and they work like crazy to get the thing up and running. And I think one of the things that is kind of a misstep for nonprofits is when the founders stay on a little too long. And they continue to have undue power and influence over the organization past the time where it's really appropriate. In the beginning, you, the, the founders really need to be very involved, very engaged. They need to give it their all and have a lot of, a lot of ability to direct the shape of uh, and the path of the organization going forward. And usually, in many cases, there's one or two really strong leaders that make things happen. But as the organization grows and matures and the organization is ready to take that next step of growth, a lot of time what happens is the founders become fearful that others will change the intentions and the way things are done. And Uh, the mission uh, of the organization and that the vision will change. In the best case scenarios, the founder is just really holding the organization back from all that it can become. But one of the challenges this creates is frustration on the part of others who have joined because they really buy into the vision of the organization and what the organization could become in the future. And they see opportunities that are not being, seized because there is concern about change and moving forward and resistance. So one way that founders can really make this process for themselves easier, as well as for the organization, is for you as the founder to begin with the end in mind. What does the organization look like after you're no longer there and begin to plan And make a path forward that results in you someday retiring from the organization, right? So think about what your life becomes once you're no longer involved on the day-to-day. Can you someday go on to an emeritus board and have a new role? So that's another, another thing to consider when you're stuck in the midst of founder syndrome is how can you take on a new role that allows you to continue to nurture your organization into the future? Uh, founders often uh, fail to do in the early years, but can be really helpful as they're thinking about changing roles is to document the history of the organization. So often the founder knows things that nobody else knows. And it's so important to the organization to have that deep, rich history. And so the founder could begin to assemble that. And there are many ways to do that, but even interviewing them, creating some, a series of videos, pictures and stories and written documents. So that I think that's a a great role for the founder to fulfill. And then also if there are special ways that the founder has learned to do things that have been helpful, get, getting those committed to paper, but also what was the thinking that led to those policies and, and trying to, to document that as well. And then is there a program in a box that you can create so that your organization can pass that information along to new employees and volunteers. So thinking about um, taking all of the excellent knowledge and expertise that the founder has developed over time through trial and error and blood, sweat, and tears and getting that committed and documented, committed to paper and documented in some way, whether it's paper or video or whatnot, so that people can use that going forward into the future without the founder having to be there standing over them explaining what to do. And then I would say practice letting go. Uh, letting go can be a, a journey. And so start with some small things that you can let go of um, so that letting go becomes part of your journey with the organization and you let go a little more and a little more and a little more. So start with some small things and start delegating them to other people and fully stepping back and letting go go of them, knowing that somebody else might not do it the same way you do it, but they'll get it done one way or another. And the world will not fall apart if they don't do it exactly the way that you do. Those are just a few words from me to you as a founder of an organization, knowing when it's time to let go is a really, really important thing to do. And when you're able to watch your organization go on without you and say, okay, that may not be the way that I would have done it, but my my organization is still a success and it's still fulfilling its mission. That can be a really great feeling. That's it, Joe. That's my two cents for today in Coach's Corner.
0: Tough conversation, Cheryl. Thank you so much for dealing with it. That is Coach's Corner for today. Thank you very much to our Impact Coach, Cheryl Sukup, for her help and expertise. And we'll see you again next time, Cheryl. Thank you, Joe. If you've got a question for Coach's Corner, we want to hear from you. Email them to us at impactcoaches at impactability.net. Again, that's impactcoaches at impactability.net. And if you want to reach me, my email address is joe.turner at impactability.net. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter at impactability.live. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And that way, you'll get new episodes downloaded just as soon as they come out. Also, please give us a review or a rating so that your peers in the nonprofit industry can find us as well. I'm Jill Turner. Thanks for listening. And thank you for all you do to make the world a better place through your nonprofit.